So, I see we've started with a film that has been described as the mother of all horrors, the best movie ever made, often ranked the greatest film ever made, and the first psychoanalytical thriller ever. So, a small movie this week. Just a small one. I mean, nobody's really heard of it, to be honest, so I thought we'd bring it to everyone's attention. Little indie. A little indie film from a little indie director called Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, widely regarded as the best film he's made, as well as the greatest film ever made. And literally a film that has many, many books written just about it. And we're going to try and condense our idiot ramblings into a good, tight 45 minutes. It's going to be a quick one, yeah. And we're going to go at it from... I don't think we should be going at it from like a scholarly perspective that's been done it's been done people have talked about this and analyzed in that way i think we should just talk about it like two british blokes you know who who question a little bit about what what does it all mean what's it all about governor so you mean you want to start talking about norman bates's butt no and honestly tom we we need to have a conversation at some point about how you really do push things always towards the butt area. I think it's alienating some of our audiences. So we are, are the three strangers, we're probably going to lose one of them because of your butt obsession. The butt bands. The butt bands. Oh, God. But what if one of the strangers is here for the butt bands? We're going to just be dividing our audience. I guess if we knew, if somebody could let us know whether the butt bands is kind of a selling point for the podcast. It would help us to understand our, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, we need to know how to tailor our content. Exactly. Do you Spot want more on. butts or less butts? Um, I also see we don't have a we don't have a soundtrack to a background environment of chavs fighting in the street this time. There isn't any screeching and- past. I don't think we heard any news about whether anybody wanted a soundtrack on the next um, podcast episode. So that's still up in the air. But no, it's early in the morning. So I'm hopeful that we will have less. I'm, I was almost going to say that the, I mean, we, we have some problems here with some gypsy travelers, gypsy travelers. Um, and they do tend to make quite a lot of noise. Jugglers. Crusty jugglers. And it's fine. There's none in the morning because, um, believe it or not, they tend to not. Uh, be drinking at this time of morning which is surprising right look we're against the clock here we've got a lot to cover i mean in summary when i started researching this i felt like every little subtopic i touched on could have been a podcast episode in itself it's absolutely immense the amount of stuff we could talk about on this um it is literally a podcast or short netflix series in of itself so we uh we will we will be touching on a lot of areas i apologize if it's an area that you feel is way more important and should deserve more time. I probably fully agree with you, but uh, I apologize if we if we skip over certain key areas. However, with that in mind, Jake, why don't you kick us off, for anyone who hasn't seen Psycho or may need to be reminded of it, uh, with a little 30-second sum. 
Oh, gosh, yes. A 30-second summary. Okay. Um, are you ready? I am ready. I'm, I will hold up my stock clock so you can see it. Okay. All right. You're ready. In your own time. Ready. Okay. A Phoenix secretary named Marion Crane embezzles or steals $40,000 from her employees and goes on the run. In that uh, kind of escape, she gets caught at the Bates Hotel for an evening where Norman, the son, who is quite a dominating mother, murders her. Spoiler. And then the rest of the film is about her sister, Lily Crane, and her lover, Sam, trying to discover what has happened to her and what is going dun, on. Dun, dun. There you go, 30 seconds. Perfect. Is that Beautiful. good? Yeah, that was very nice. Okay, we got there. We got there in the end. Yeah, very good. Um, so there's a couple of things that I wanted to start us off with, just to frame the movie a little bit. And okay. it's basically like, I think we could, we could group it into three lenses if you imagine a venn diagram in your mind these three things are happening at the same time which is why this is sort of a slightly unique perfect movie for a lot of people so um the first one was alfred hitchcock himself and his career and the hype around the man yeah. um the second was the hayes act which we will talk about in a moment yes and the other was the idea and the shocking revelation of a serial killer or someone who wasn't essentially a gangster with a tommy gun which was the sort of to that point the idea of what a criminal or a murderer really was in the sort of general consciousness of america very true um so let's just start with with that one because again let's talk about ed jean who is again a podcast and i think literally a netflix series in of himself the the killings that ed jean did and committed kind of shocked america it was like a rock dropped into the middle of a still pond um, because like of the horrific graphic nature of who he was as a person and what he was doing in private in that he was a sort of all American just country bumpkin just bloke living on his own in a nice farmhouse mm. and then after they kind of investigated him after he'd made a few killings it turned out he'd been robbing graves making furniture and objects out of bones and skin Absolutely kind of horrific, depraved stuff, all sort of in the privacy of his own farm. Um, and, I, and I think to that point, America hadn't really thought about that. I think we are quite familiar with these sorts of horrific killer ideas because of our sort of media slight obsession or interest in them. You know, we, are, we have grown up in a world of Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal and all this stuff and TV shows and... All that stuff. So, so I think the idea of that there are serial killers out there and they do horrible things to people uh, is not shocking. But to America, it was like it had not really happened before. I mean, there are plenty of series about that. But that was something that was suddenly in the consciousness. And you saw that starting to affect loads of different movies as well over the next sort of 10 to 20 years, as well as books and media and blah, blah, blah. So we have that going on. That's in the consciousness. Then we've got the Hayes Act, which is ridiculous in some ways it's an old school it's such a it's such a weird old school mentality the Hayes Act I mean it, it's funny to look at back now uh, uh now but this was what 72 yeah years I mean ago? the Hayes Act was brought in 1930 1933 zero oh well and I'm then talking the film about came the out film. in the 60s so they'd yeah. had they were living under 30 30 years, years of the Hayes Act which was uh, basically a code of conduct that was brought in to or but pressured by a conservative group on the studios of Hollywood. And it wasn't yeah. actually law or brought into law. It was more just a threat that if you break this code of rules that we've come up with, we will get our Republican politician buddies to put a whole bunch of pressure on the studio and make life very, very difficult for you. 
So the studios were freaked out by this and then basically abided by the code of conduct that was some incredibly ridiculously strict. Some of it is just... Yeah, I mean, there's, um, there's, there's a few sort of key highlights of it, which is like, no picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. Yeah, and that's very generic. And if you think about some of the films that are very challenging of the 70s and 80s going onwards, you know, when the studio system somewhat broke down and allowed for the haze to erode, we get much more challenging pictures and much more interesting pictures. The nature of art in of itself Um, is to challenge the viewer and, you know, God forbid, make you think, you know, make you empathise with a criminal Make you empathise. This could be the first well, one, yeah. to be honest. Obviously, we don't really empathise with the criminal on I this one, we... but it definitely eroded and pretty much was the first to, like, well, one of the first to throw yeah. away the Hayes Act. And, and I mean, it, it definitely wasn't. It. So what was kind of also happening is, is why the Hayes Act started to eroded was because of television. You know, that suddenly started putting a lot more content into people's homes that wasn't, you know, abiding by this strict code of conduct. And so the studio system yeah. was starting to really struggle, and eventually they just went, "Oh fuck it, like, let's just like, let's just put out the content to get people back into the cinemas again." Um, so then, you know, so again, under our sort of three big lenses, you then suddenly had the opportunity for a director to make something incredibly shocking that people haven't really ever seen before. You know, or at least a generation hadn't seen before. Exactly. Um, so that was that was all very yeah. exciting, very exciting for the time. Um, and then you've got Hitchcock himself, um, who. You know, if it, this this wasn't an early career picture for him. This was this was actually quite late career. He was very well established, had a very a lot of hype around him, and it was his kind of opportunity to go. You know what? Rather than just do another massive picture, I'm going to go small budget. I'm going to pick up this book that the studio doesn't yeah. want me to make. I'm going to finance it myself. I'm going to do it on the cheap. I'm going to use the crew that I had for this TV series that I'm making. Yep, Alfred Hitchcock presents, and we're just going to smash this thing out, you know, and and just do it super super fast. There's first time he's used kind of a bit of improvisation in scenes. The style is quite loose. It's basically kind of a master of his craft, shaking it off and just doing something fun. So it's kind of like Spielberg going, you know what? I just want to do yeah. like a sort of couple of million dollar movie, just just you know, just a, a quick dirty slasher movie, just and you. Would be nice if Spielberg did that, actually. And if you think about it, just to go off topic, he did he kind did, of yeah. do that with um, Munich, if you remember. I mean, Munich was still a massive movie. Yeah. Though. There were still some massive set pieces in that. Yeah, to be fair. But it was it was not in comparison no, to totally some of the stuff he was doing at the time. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of yes. people who've done this similar. I mean, Tarantino did it similarly with his uh, like Death Proof movie that was a similar sort of flex yeah. for him just to go and let's just do something without any budget and it would be nice to see more directors doing that because I, i've always held the belief that creativity needs confines to really spark you know and these directors that have unlimited budget unlimited time you know create well kind of what tarantino does now where it's good but it's sprawling and it's a bit of a mess i often think of of his movies uh, and actually it's what he big, probably needed yeah. was half the budget and half the time and could have probably done something twice as good yeah that's true it it takes a lot for a director to recognize that and step up to the challenge of putting those restrictions on on and you know hitchcock did it himself it wasn't a studio that did this it wasn't thrust upon him to say you you have to work to this budget he chose to do that and that's 
I mean, it, it's interesting in, in the little research, the little research that I've done, there's a lot of talk about how Hitchcock went back and forth on this film between loving and hating it. Even after it was shot and it was in the can and he'd done the first pass of the edit, he was like, this is a mistake. I think we're going to have to just cut this down to a TV episode and put it out as Alfred Hitchcock presents. And it wasn't until the score was put on it, which is probably one of the greatest scores because it just completely redefines the movie. He he saw it in a different light. So it was a, a labor to get this film out there. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't always of love, I don't think. I, I think there were moments where he questioned. But he also, he challenged himself because he had seen other filmmakers work that he felt was doing mm-hmm. Alfred Hitchcock better than Alfred Hitchcock. And therefore he needed to return to his roots and do something different. And that was Psycho. Yeah, it was Bernard Herrmann who did the score for it. Um, you know, the, I think uh, That's Hitchcock credited him with 33% of the success of the movie is down to the score alone, which is, is pretty good. I mean, I, I, I like think, that. Um, so um, we should we should kind of just talk about our our thoughts a little bit. I believe that's what people are here for. But um, <laughs> I believe that's why people are here. So I tried to go into this movie. Obviously, I've seen it before, but it was a long time ago. And I think everyone is familiar with a lot of the key scenes of it. I, I would say like the shower scene, or the pushing down the stairs scene that I still find very peculiar, and the, the finale, the reveal. I think everyone everyone knows those very well. But I tried to go and just, yes. just you know shake it all out of my head and, and watch it afresh. And, and the score is one of the main things that, that cuts through the fact that it's so jarring. It's so stabby already, already from the beginning. You know, just even scenes of uh, Janet Lee's um, Marianne yep. just driving around just with a stabby, sharp score over the top of it. It's very, uh, very unnerving. Tension. It's constant yeah. tension. And I, I think as well, like we were talking about the Hayes Code as well. Like there are some things I think in this that we would take for granted that, but to an audience at the time would have been, you know, like incredibly shocking right from the off the fact that the opening shot which was apparently supposed to be a four mile long helicopter shot into the window and then they were like uh that's gonna cost a little bit of money (laughs) alfred you might want to cut that down it becomes more of a kind of tracking shot that closes in on a window but opens and introduces our characters mid like post coitus in in a hotel room She's wearing a bra. Like, holy crap. <laughs> we are in uncharted territory here. But I think what's quite nice about at least these scenes is that um, you know, we we initially think we're going to fall into the the, the, the beginnings of a trope of horror, which is that like sin leads to death and punishment. And in some ways, you know, she at, she is having sex before marriage, which is a sin, but they're also lovers who plan on getting married. So it's not, it throws a bit of a sort of fly into the ointment of it. It's not as clean cut, you know, and, and, you know, ultimately when she does steal the money, she's not a master criminal. She's not a bad person. It's a moment of madness. It's a moment of like, what if I just do this? And then shit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She's doing it for love, isn't she, really? She's doing it to try and help Sam and her have a have a start because he doesn't want to he loves her and wants to marry her but not with yeah. no money i mean i don't know what her plan ultimately is whether they but i don't think she's even thought that far i mean she's a terrible criminal like just it's a poor plan she's the worst criminal ever but she has amazing makeup throughout even when she wakes up in the morning after sleeping face down on a car seat her makeup is beautiful she looks beautiful amazing. janet lee's face yeah but I mean, a lot of that stuff as well, like as I found, like, because I, I try to distance myself from thinking 
of knowing the ending and, and knowing what was coming and just watching it cold. And I think what 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 is so good about this opening is that um, you start thinking, well, is is Janet Lee is is Marion the psycho of the title? Because we we start to hear all these voices in her head as she's playing out scenes or how they could play out, you know, in the future, which is a, a very cool trick. You know, again, something that probably people hadn't seen a lot of before in cinema. And she does a sort of, uh, there is a scene where she's sort of looking ahead out the window, but she's really essentially looking at the camera, like breaking the fourth wall and starts having a sort of slight smirk as she's thinking, and you start going, oh, is this, is this the start of this mm. woman breaking? Is she going to be the psycho that we are going to follow? Wouldn't that have been interesting? A female psychopath on screen in 1960. I think that might have been a step too far for audiences. Well, I mean, audiences were already primed that this was going to be a a shocking movie with a with big twists in it because they'd been very sneaky with their like promotion of it. You know, they even put in rules that people weren't allowed to enter the cinema after the screening had begun. There were all these signs outside saying "Don't spoil the movie." So I think people were primed for anything really and especially as this it was the 1960s it was daring it was this movie that started with a woman in a bra who knows where it could go who knows and it's very good marketing you know Alfred Hitchcock did know what he was doing about that kind of getting the the word out and people uh, hyped up and if you think about it it's a little bit similar to something like you know a quiet place that happened recently where they talk about how you know, audiences have to be quiet in the cinema and you have to, you know, not make a sound to appreciate the films. And suddenly it's an ex- it's an experience. It was a event movie. And I think that's what Psycho was kind of doing very well, um, that it was had to be seen to to be believed. And you shouldn't talk about it unless you've seen it. And, like, yeah, that's great. That's going to yeah. get people... I mean, literally queuing around the blocks to see it. They were like, there were sort of next showings and they would count down the minutes till the next showing of it. You know, people were like hyped for this event cinema, essentially. Yeah. Which, you know, I think we are, again, used to the idea of people queuing around the blocks, you know, and it's not the first time that a movie came out where people queued around the blocks. Like, I think Gone with the Wind had people queuing overnight and stuff to see it. But um, yeah, it it was big event cinema. It was splashy. It was... You know, Alfred Hitchcock didn't see it as a sort of horrible, dark drama. He saw it as a kind of carnival ride. It was it was supposed to be, in his mind, kind of a fun movie well, in some ways. It's interesting you should say that. So from your perspective, having watched it, kind of trying with fresh eyes recently, how did you feel about it being fun? Did you feel it was more horrific than fun? Um, I didn't. I mean, I think it's difficult with our view of... Perception. Of even like editing and the rhythm of movies, I think has changed so much since 1960 that there is a lot of the staging and a lot of the dialogue scenes, especially early on, are quite boring by today's standards. I think, yeah. um, you know, there's quite drawn out, especially I think it's so hard to watch this movie without knowing what's coming that maybe if I had absolutely no idea, I would have just found it quickly entertained because I wouldn't know where the movie was going or what this was about. It's a yeah. criminal movie. It's this woman on the run. She's being... And, and again, they start start layering in who is the psycho. You know, you have this police officer, you know, with, with big, big sunglasses with that you can't see his eyes. Is he going to be the psycho? Because not mm. only was he very intense in their first encounter, he then seems to be following her around the town. It's kind of harassing her, really. It's, it's, it really, it's was. really not cool, it that is, police officer, just to just cool. to stand and stare at someone from across the road. <laughs> very intimidating and not very nice. It's just not a very nice man. It's not very nice. Um, so some of those things, and I think for me, 
I was I was with it for most of it. I did feel like it kind of dips in interest in the kind of the second third of it when we sort of have the you know the brother and the sister investigating a shipping ride. You just kind of want to get to the chase a little bit. I think brother and sister. Oh, well, lover, lover and sister. sister. Like um, you know, I think we we as an audience already kind of know what's going on. So seeing them sort of trying to figure out what's going on is a bit boring because you're like oh. I uh, see. <laughs> I didn't I didn't mind that so much. I I kind of liked how Sam was a little bit smarter about it. He went in there with some serious suspicions because they've they've had probably more information than anybody else at this point because, of course, poor Abergast has gone in there as a private detective trying to, to work it out and has done a lot yeah. of the work from his own skills and unfortunately um, come to his demise in a rather horrible manner. But the, the Sam and, uh, and, and Lila, they know more. They know more than pretty much everyone else. And they are, they've got their, their backs up. They, they can tell that something's wrong. So um, yeah, it's, it, it builds to a tension point, but I think as soon as she takes the money, you know, Marion takes the money at the beginning, that's it. That's, it's all about dread and like, she's going to pay for that. And you know, she's, she's done something morally wrong. I don't know if you noticed, she's wearing, she's a bit, you know, angelic at the start. She's wearing a white bra. She's dressed in white. And then after she steals the money, she's got black bra, yeah. black underwear. Because she's evil now. She's tainted. She's, she's got a tainted bra on. She's got a tainted bra. A lot of people bra. wear tainted bras these days. I wouldn't know. It's not one of my kind of things. But Tom, you know, if you, if if you, you, if you enjoy a tainted way, bra, knock yourself out. Knock yourself well, out. One of the, the big kind of... Um, realignments in my head watching this though was um I, th I think one of the people often mistake that that it's it's almost like a fake out is is this see you know is is marion you know that she's all the, the only purpose of marion is just to almost trick us with the fact that she then is murdered like uh i think it's about 49 minutes into the movie so it's this it's a substantial amount to say that she to is just movie. like, she is kind of almost inconsequential or is just a ploy to go like, aha, you thought it was about this, but it's not. No. I don't agree with that at all. She is the catalyst of the whole She's movie. She's vital. You know, like, she, she, she completely lands that first third of the movie and is then the catalyst for the next, you know, the, the remaining of it. Like, Two thirds, yeah. And, and her and Norman... They aren't just two completely random different people. They are intrinsically connected as characters. They are like yin and yang, like an aerobarous snake. You know, like they they are destined to be each other's undoing. And there are so many interesting mm. parallels between them that you can start drawing. You know, the fact that she, she's a woman, she's blonde hair, she's from the city. He's a guy, he's got dark hair, he's from the country. She moves from a world of bright light into the shadows. And ultimately, he's a guy who lives in the shadows, and it is in coming into the light that he is kind of revealed. You know, they they live these double lives essentially. They they're often shot in front of mirrors with reflections, often saying like, you know, these are these are two people who have these two different lives. She is a secretary and now a criminal. He's a motel owner, but also has DID and and a criminal record. A criminal. Um, and I think that's that that's so interesting that you know, and, and that's why when the movie shifts after her death, which we will obviously talk about. It then becomes about Norman for the rest of the movie. And yeah. And you know, like if you again you 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 forget that he is the killer, we do become very sympathetic towards him because we think he's just 
a young man who loves his mother and is trying to keep the pieces together of a horrible situation. Keep the pieces of her awful acts and to hide those acts. And, and yeah, I mean, I do wonder when you, if audiences were first seeing this film and were told there's going to be a twist, there's a huge twist, you know, you won't see it coming. It's this thing, you know, are they picking it apart that he's the actual murderer? I do wonder. There aren't a huge amount of clues. And in fact, I think Alfred Hitchcock goes to some great lengths to try and hide the the, mm-hmm. the truth, the, the reveal. You know, the conversations between Mother and Norman are intense and, you know, performed in a very real manner. And actually, as I was watching it, I was sat there thinking, God, you know, for him to actually do that, the way that we're hearing it, it's quite a, quite a feat, you know, to, to carry on a conversation with himself. But maybe that was enough to get audiences back in the day to think, oh, God, no, it's, it's she's evil. It's an evil mother. What's the twist, you know, that everybody dies or, you know? Yeah, I mean, even when we find out that the mother had died 10 years ago, we as an audience are like, but we've seen her, we've heard her, yeah, we know so she's maybe alive. Maybe you would be thinking the twist is somebody else died. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think yeah. that's where it's very much leading you to believe because we know that she is there. So it's not even a mystery of how she died because I think you'd instantly go, well, it's got to be Norman, right? Because he's yeah. the only one who's been around. But I think they do a good job of, of completely throwing you off that that trail as well. Um, so I, let, let's just kind of. Let's cut to the shower scene a little bit. So well, I think we yeah, should. Right. I think we should talk about the first death because it's a for. doozy. It's like a very, very iconic, well-known scene. Uh, yeah, absolutely is. Um, apparently, it was a uh, it was sort of uh, storyboarded by Saul Bass, who's the graphic designer of graphic the designer. intro sequence. Like beautiful, very influential graphic yeah. designer. I've used him on loads of stuff. Yeah, very, very amazing kind of motion graphic title sequences for a lot of stuff so so he's he's an absolute legend and uh i think you can kind of see that sort of animator's eye in the rhythm of that scene as well so you know i think he should totally be credited for this um you know this incredible scene in cinema which uh which just to remind people i'm sure everyone is completely familiar with it but you know we, we are kind of alerted to the fact that that norman is a little bit creepy we don't know if he's a uh, a flat out. Well, he's definitely a peeping tom. He's a peeping that's tom, what but he seems quite nice. But then there's also an edge to him in some of their he has dialogue. That edge, you that, know, where, yeah. So you know, again, as our about putting mother in a home, he did not like talking about that. And our back, yeah. you know, our backs are suddenly up after yeah. that. So again, with our questioning of who is the psycho in this movie, um, you know, we we probably have gone. Is it Jan Lino? Maybe not. Is it this cop that's following it? Maybe not. Okay, it's got to be Norman. <laughs> He's got to be the yeah. psycho. Okay, see where this is going. And so we have Janet Lee in, in the shower. Ooh, she flushes a toilet before that. First time a toilet has ever been flushed Ooh, on TV. Oh, my God. Had to be written in to be, you know, of actually purpose to the story of which it was because she was getting rid of her calculations, you know. I mean, I don't really know if you needed to write those calculations down it was quite a simple there weren't calculators back in those days for, Tom, 40, so 40,000 minus seven M- minus 700 like, i'm gonna need to write this down a piece of paper i mean i would to be fair because i'm an idiot with maths but um who knows well anyway she flushes the toilet is it real estate yeah so i imagine she's probably pretty good with numbers already if she's working in real estate that's true 
That's true. Yeah. We're picking it apart. But anyway, flushes the toilet, gets changed, is is seen quite, you know, naked. Scantily really. clad. Scantily. Well, she's not wearing anything. And they frame her quite well. And, and then, yes, she's in this position of incredible vulnerability because the shower uh, curtain is pulled. The door has been closed, but I guess not locked from the inside. Yeah, yeah. Um, and oh, it's that moment of watching the door open. I must admit, is it a little bit of that same Jaws effect of, you know, you'll never go back in the water? I've definitely always felt a little bit, funnily enough, mostly with when I've had a shower curtain shower <laughs> rather than another shower, you know, a door. But quite vulnerable in the shower you're in an incredibly you, vulnerable state aren't you you know you, you've got naked. nowhere to you've got nowhere to run yeah. <laughs> nowhere uh... to run you often can't hear what's happening around you because of the sound of the water there have been occasions where i've thought oh god what if i you know turned around and there was somebody in the bathroom who had got in there so yeah and, and obviously this has been used then countless times since probably just not to a psycho, but just because of that very reason that you are in such a vulnerable position. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I won't do a Jake sweeping statement and say this was the first, but no, I imagine that though it was it was quite shocking in just the way that it was lit in that it's inc- it's it's incredibly bright. It's not a dark haunted house, scary like traditionally scary situation in inverted commas. Um, it's incredibly bright familiar environment for something so shocking to happen in which was probably again very jarring to see because we haven't really seen that in the same way that um midsummer recently is like a horror film set in bright sunshine you know like that's quite unsettling to see because we are just so unused to horror films being in that sort of environment yeah absolutely so i wonder did audiences feel safe or were they also feeling... I think that they would have felt uneasy and and probably confused as to why they're seeing as much as they're seeing. You know, that scene, had it not been integral to the story, would have been a flash of a moment. It could, if maybe Alfred wanted to show off a little bit of bare skin, it would have just been a slight glimpse and then, you know, you move on. So you know something's coming. You know the tension is there. The framing is such that you're looking back at Marion through the curtain to the door. The door opens and a figure is there. And that's it. You're 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 just waiting for the inevitable yeah. of, you know, this is going to be bad. And then you have that moment of the curtain pulled back, the scream, and the iconic kind of what what would you call it? It's the screaming of the of the um soundtrack. I mean, it of, is a stabbing soundtrack, it's a... which is all strings as well. Absolutely terrifying in that moment. Well, plus the fact that it's and not then, Norman. Yeah. It's it's an old yeah, you woman. Can see. And so I think woman. that's that's one of those things of like, oh, holy crap, that's not who I thought it was going to be. You know, because we just imagine this is just some grumpy old lady who's just cranky. But again, that, so, so that's a massive shock. Plus also, I mean, we're super familiar think, with knowing that this is like, oh, this is the shower scene. You know, a lot of the audiences thought Janet Lee was the star of this picture. So no one's yep. even expecting her to get stabbed at this point, let alone die. Um, you know, so they're thinking, oh, it's going to be Norman. There's going to be some altercation. It's going to be a bit jumpy and scary because we're all primed for this already. I don't think anyone was expecting it to be some old woman who then graphically stabs our protagonist in a way that 
we are completely disorientated about what we've actually just seen. Because again, like I said, there's this incredibly sharp stabbing strings, plus flash edit cuts of stuff that you don't know what you're actually looking at. Like it's, it's, it's all in your head. There's horrible, I mean, brilliant, but horrible Foley work of kind of squelch stabbing sounds. There You're is. seeing, you know, flashes of knives flashing, bits of screaming. Knives against skin. You see it against her belly at some point, and it's like, oh, okay. You know, that's not comfortable. Yeah. I mean, even the uh, the sensors at the time or, or later were, were arguing about what they had or hadn't seen. Some people claimed that they'd seen, you know, like like bare buttocks and boobs, and, they, and then others were like, I haven't seen that. And then they did a recut, and then the others said that they could now see it, and the others couldn't. So there was... It definitely plays into again a psychological aspect, but also how you, the viewers were going to interpret the images that they were seeing in incredibly effective ways. You know, effectively used years later on things like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which aren't nearly as graphic as people remember it as being. It's all foley work and all what you think is happening. I think that's better. We've said this before that the, the mind is a, a, more, a you know it's it's a tool that will scare people far more than actually seeing every detail and every element of, of horror on screen. So it's, it's a scary place inside everyone's own head. So let them, let them do it themselves, fill in the gaps with what will shock them the most. And, and Hitchcock does a great job here. And, you know, Janet Lee is, is pretty damn good in this moment. Um, the other thing that I was surprised about, of course, is that it's kind of goes back to your point, which was she was always so, perfect in all the other scenes her makeup is perfect her hair is perfect she's very attractive she's quite a beautiful woman suddenly she's in the shower her hair is all matted and down and damp on her face and she looks different she looks like almost like a scared you know animal as it were when when it starts happening she's got no chance she's got no chance and we have to watch it play out in kind of real time that's the other thing you know, she stab, 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 old woman leaves, and then you watch her sink and die in the in the bathroom. And you have that amazing fade from the blood going down the, the plug hole to her dead pupil and her eye and the pull back. And it's iconic. I mean, it made me remember a few other kind of famous cross fades that have happened in, in movies and something like, you know, Ripley's helmet is cross fading to a planet edge in aliens. And I don't think it's done quite as iconic. I think this one is, is very iconic that, that cross fade yeah, I mean, is, um, is incredible. From, uh, from the eye pulling out. And this was supposed to be like a, a, a one, a one track thing of from the eye. Yeah. And they do cut it because I think she blinked. So there's, there's a shortcut well, it's hard though. I think it's frozen to begin with. I think it is. I think it's a zoom in on. It's the a frame. zoom in on a still, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it's not badly done. No, it's you can see good. where the film starts again, but it's not terrible. No, no. Um, and then yeah, the the water's dripping off a of fair. I was like, no, it's good. But again, stylistically, like it's incredible to go from something that close to end up on the long shot yeah. of the house as well, and especially with the equipment that they had at the time. You know, like the the focus pullers at the time. Like that's incredible work oh. to maintain focus throughout all of those camera moves as well is incredible like you know with, with our camera equipment these days you still see that fuck up loads of times from focus pullers just missing a beat and suddenly it's, it's just a hell of a right. skill so it's incredibly 
It's incredibly technically clever. And again, we keep talking about like how shocking all of these elements must be to, to audiences at the time. Things like this are incredibly technically impressive shots that weren't super familiar in the same way that people like David Fincher like doing camera shots that you go like, what the yeah. hell? Like, I've never seen that before. Um, you know, if you even, even like Panic Room, which I know isn't a great movie, but for the time it does a, a huge amount of shots where you're like zooming through the handle of a kettle and things and shots like that you go like, how the hell did you do that? Yeah, uh, you know, because we did like doing that kind of stuff. You know, um, that that was all like a CGI kettle, which and we'd never really seen CGI used so realistically that you could actually move through the handle of it and things like that. So, you know, incredibly impressive scene. But also, then I think for fifty minutes into a movie, then goes, well, so what the fuck is this movie about now? So we we get told like, but I think that scene tells us what the movie is then going to be about. It's, it's going to be the death of Marion. It's going to be the motive of money. And it's going to be the house on the hill with the old lady in it. <laughs> it's, a, it's an old one, though, because it sidelines the money. That's the, that's the funny thing. The money, you think, is going to be the defining um, kind of propelling, what would you call a MacGuffin or, or whatever it yeah, is? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Or the motive in the same way yeah. that Shallow Grave was. All yeah, about exactly. So you that think, but, pile of money, and 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 Hitchcock plays with us because you he lingers on that newspaper after Marion has died, and and actually that was one of the things I noticed in rewatching. I forgot. I was like, what does happen with the money? Because it sits there till the last second, whilst Norman is clearing out the the hotel room and hiding the crime, and you think, oh, okay, he's missed it, he's missed it, and then at the last yep. second, it's thrown into the back of the car and it is sunk in the swamp. The money's gone. That yep. that is not. A, that was never a motive for for the murder. Obviously, we know that this is a murder of passion from a clearly jealous, deranged mother. That's our thought process of that. But then we're like, well, the money is is disappeared. So surely this is now completely about something else. This is just going to be about Marion's death, really, yep. and who yep. you know who did it and how it's going to come to justice. And again, the, 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 the traditional depiction of criminals to date were gangsters and robbers. So the idea of someone killing for money is incredibly a familiar trope. Absolutely. So to then go, you know what, it's not about money. It's about something darker, more psychological. We're going into a sort of realms that we're not really used to in traditional pop cinema. Completely wrong between the audiences, but it is still it is still a prevalent thread throughout the movie from that point on because that is still the thread that um, that, that, that Sam and Leela believe is the motive because they're the ones yep. trying to find where Marion is, but then also thinking, oh, she's been killed for this money. There's something to do with the money. Yeah, that's true. That's what they're always they think Norman with his failing motel is the reason that it's happened. That he's he's. Well, they don't think they, you know, killed her at this point. They're hoping not, but uh, that he has taken the money or found out. So it, it's an important point. But I guess, you know, for audiences who know that it was a mother figure, it then becomes about how far will this go? Because as Abagast arrives, the tension increases again. And it's cat and mouse. He's smart. He's He's doing things that... Norman is not clued into and, and is not uh, on top of. 
But that rush sequence of the stairs where she literally rushes out of the bedroom with the knife straight away is another shocking moment because unlike the shower scene where we see the door open, we know she's in a vulnerable position. You don't expect him to be stabbed walking up the stairs. No, and he's a he's a fully all. grown, strong man on alert. You know, like he's... Yeah. But, I mean, he thinks he's going to go and have a word with an old woman. He's not... Who would expect an old woman to come rushing at you with a with a knife stabbing at you? Um, yeah. I do still find that shot of him floating Falling. down the stairs very peculiar. I, it's, it's odd. I... I quite like it in a weird way because you just see the shock and horror on his face and he has been stabbed in the face at this point, which is, or something's happened because he's got blood straight down one side and yet it's kind of him falling and struggling. He's slipping down the stairs more than anything. He's not falling entirely backwards and rolling. He's just slipping down the stairs. Just about staying on his feet and then he falls flat on his back and is stabbed. It is an odd one. It is an odd one. And it's one that always sticks out when they remade Psycho. And I believe it's... Gus Van um, Sant, wasn't it? 1919. Gus Van Sant remade it, but it's played by... Oh, my goodness, his name. William H. Macy. So uh, William H. Macy, William yeah. H. Macy is the one. And they and they recreate that moment, and it still looks odd. <laughs> it's, a, it's an odd moment. I mean, the whole remake thing, which um, I think probably should just be forgotten, really. It's just a very peculiar... It was forgotten. People don't... I mean, what was the point... Just ultimately, it was an incredibly pointless movie that I don't have any idea what they thought was going to happen. Where they go, you know what, Gus Van Sant, you're better than Hitchcock. I don't. It was weird. It was weird. weird. So obviously, we, you know, not to dwell on every every beat of the movie because we are against the clock. Yeah. Um, But obviously, that that takes us through, you know, single thread that takes us through to the the big reveal at the end that Mrs. Bates did die. She is dead. She's a little husk of an old woman. She's a skeleton that's been stored in the fruit cellar. And big reveal, it's Norman Bates, who's a killer who is is dressed in her clothing. He believes that he is his mother and it's it's been him the whole time. And yeah. obviously that that's that's the big twist reveal. So there's a few things I did want to talk about as well, which is kind of the the representation of kind of gay and queerness in the movie as well, because Norman is kind of presented as what I think probably a lot of gay men were at the time. You know, they were nice boys, you know, like good looking, well kept, suspiciously single, very close to their mothers, you know, like, but not out. But did you did you think that that... So I didn't pick up on any representation from Norman or, or, or any inkling that he was attracted to men. That's not... I, I never picked that up from the film. I I get the impression that he is a mother's boy in the beginning, and obviously he's talking to, to Marion, but I got the impression that he was quite maybe attracted to Marion. You know, I, obviously yeah, he's, I mean, he's a peeping Tom as well at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, there is that line, but I just... There was a part of me that just imagined that a lot of gay men were like Norman Bates characters. And I think there was almost a kind of a potential weaponization to go like, oh, there's already something odd about those sorts of characters. What if they're a killer, you know, as well? And so there's part of me that's just a little bit kind of like interest in that, especially as, as Perkins himself was allegedly homosexual as well. So I don't know if that, that was also a sort of subtext that he was working with, you know, and, and layering that in a little bit. And then obviously you have the sort of reveal at the end of him 
wearing women's clothing, which, you know, is, is to, to an audience in the 60s, obviously, the idea of a man in clothing, in women's clothing is, is incredibly shocking. And, oh my God, that's like, never would have expected that, especially the fact he's wielding a knife as well. And he's terrifying as that. And again, kind of weaponizing an amount of kind of transphobia as well into the movie at the same time. And, uh, and to its defense, the movie's defense, they do address like, oh, he's just a transvestite. And you have the psychologist saying, well, no, it's got nothing to do with that. It's more the fact that he just flat out believes he is his mother. Yeah, they do. A lot of people criticize that last scene because essentially it's explaining something that really didn't need as much explanation in some regards. Every little detail of what we've just seen is then talked about by a random psychiatrist who we've never met before, who is actually quite dominating. It just goes over what what we've already learned. However, you are exactly right. I think one of the really important things he does is he corrects the accusation that um, Norman is a transvestite. He says it's nothing to do with that. He is his mother. He has become the dominant personality that he created in his head, which is his mother, um, who was an abusive uh, and difficult person. That is important. That is essential that they do shift away this kind of, as you say, uncomfortable accusation that this could be linked to those tendencies, that psychotic nature could be linked to either homosexuality or trans culture. Yeah, it's good that they they steer away, but I'm sure that it was still a problem at the time. And it is something that people maybe don't connect as quickly nowadays when they think yep. about psycho. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it didn't help. I mean, it certainly did, probably didn't help any of the uh, community dealing with kind of mental differences or mental health issues, you know, especially the term psycho, you know, became synonymous with wearing a dress, thinking your mother running around with a knife, stabbing girls, you know, as so anytime anyone was on anti-psychotics or had a psychological problem, um, was instantly connected to this movie. Yeah, that's true. Which is has obviously kind of weaponized that term quite a lot and probably did not help that community for a very, very long time as well. So it, it was kind of a, it was a victim of its own success in that way and the fact that, you know, it became so prominent it did probably have that knock-on effect to different sub-communities as well that then would struggle with that for a long time, especially with, um, I would say, like DID or split personality disorders or anyone with that sort of, issue again was probably for a very long time associated with oh so you think you're your mother and you want to stab girls well it was this is the this is the the curse of popular culture and popular films isn't it at the end of the day you know these things are not made to be educational in in many ways they're made to entertain it's a movie and there's two sides of the coin you have a responsibility to be conscious of communities and people and to do the right thing but also these things can become runaway hits which mm -hmm. is exactly what psycho was you know it was a huge box office success and everybody was talking about it and it's completely seeped into the fabric of popular culture and therefore it's had more of an impact than was ever intended so it, it's a very difficult line i do feel that that they've made efforts to try and do the right thing in psycho i think hitchcock did try to really make clear 
why this has happened to Norman, why Norman is the way he is, and to kind of signpost how terrible that has become. I just think that no matter what is said, sometimes, you know, some people are going to take things a certain way and run away with an idea from that. And you, you, it's, it's so difficult to stop that from a movie perspective that comes from a huge amount of education needed. That's what I would say. Yeah, about I that, mean, I and you see that even like 20, 30 years later with something like Silence of the Lambs that pretty much is recycles a lot of these beats again inspired by ed ed gein ed gene do you say gein or gene um killings you've got like a a serial killer you know main person that they that you are following quite predominantly that is into dressing like a woman believes is a woman wearing women's skin as well so it did take us a while to start moving away from some of these tropes that i think layered themselves quite firmly into horror movie for a very very long time that's only a good thing, but um, it, I think it's probably probably started a lot of that from this movie as well. Yeah, you know, with a lot of people wanting to kind of rep, you know replicate the rhythms of that and the the, the feeling of it. Absolutely. Um, can we stop recording uh, on or finish on? <laughs> well, can we stop recording? I've got a lot of traffic noise now, so I apologise to our listeners, but uh, it is essential to have the window open, have a bit of fresh air at this time of morning, but. Gosh, they do fly past. Anyway, I wanted to talk a little bit about Janet Lee, just a little, if if we can, because she was obviously very good in this film. Um, and there are a few little things that that uh, I found out through through reading up, such as that she she didn't take a, a shower after this film. She only bathed. Holding, she was, holding a gun. That's true. She was questioned <laughs> on it much later. <laughs> yeah, she only bathed after this. And apparently, as well, she was in that shower for seventy uh, for seventy setups wow, over okay. seven days. So that's a lot of time that she's in that fucking shower. I mean, yeah, thank God that. Um, I wonder if she was. I wonder if she was naked Maybe as well. Yeah, the little modesty bandages and patches. I'm sure there were a modesty thing. She was in there for seven days, which is crazy. And you know she puts in good work. I, I like her. I think she's she's a good actress. She's been in a few other things, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I, I love her in this role as well because I think she has so much to work with. You know, she she goes from seemingly quite naive, you know, uh, to then on the lamb on the run trying to figure it out. But I think even by the time she gets to the motel, and especially her conversation with Norman in the parlor, she's quite dominant and quite strong-willed at that point i think because because there, there, there is a moment where she, she turns and sort of very much decided that i'm just going to go back home what am i doing out here this is kind of it's kind of stupid but actually no harm's really done at this point you know like i can return the money on monday you know like and it's quite open and and honest and clear with norman and, and seems very in control of the whole situation the fact that she is sort of you know in this just having a sandwich in a strange guy's parlor but she seems very in control of the situation she doesn't look like a victim she's not acting scared or nervous it's true so yeah we we do want to we, we don't want to keep going on for because we definitely could but there's a couple of beats that i just wanted to talk about that i found interesting um the fact that we empathize with norma for the second half of the movie predominantly uh reminded me of knives out from recently where again it's a twist on the usual horror tropes where you are following the perpetrator a little bit 
but you're sort of empathizing with them. You're trying to, you want them to sort of get away with it a little bit in the same way with Norman. You don't really want Norman to be poor because we quite like Norman because we don't really know, you know, we just think he's trying to do his best. At that point, because we don't know. Yeah, this bad situation together. Ultimately, we're scared of his mother, not scared of Norman. We just know, we think actually he's quite a nice guy trying to just keep everything together, yep. keep keep the norm. Well, he, I think that's, that's purely from the reaction we hear of Norman to um, Marion's death, because you oh, hear God, the, the conversation between him and mother, where he says, mother, oh my God, no blood. Uh, what have you done? What have you done? Yeah. And that's it. That's all that Hitchcock needed to do for us to suddenly be sympathetic towards Norman, because he didn't want in his, in that, well, that side of him, I don't think wanted Marion to die. I think actually did find her attractive. Yeah, the Norman, the Norman side. side did. No, uh, or at least a friend, yeah. you know, because, you know, a nice friend. Um, there's a couple of other things that I won't go into because let's wrap it up because, uh, you know, there, there are things to do with like the house and how there are three levels that, you know, they ultimately, some some believe that have represent different states of the oh, mind. Okay. The, the top level is like the, the super, super ego, which is like the mother is at the top floor. The, the middle floor is is basically Norman, that's his level, and then the basement is the id. You know, it's, 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 the, it's the sort of the, the, the sub-needs and the dark secrets in the basement. So, uh, you know, so ultimately, it, you know, towards the end of the movie, the mother moves into the basement, so there's, a, there's powerful symbolism in that. So, meh, that is interesting enough. But again, we could do a whole podcast on the symbology and psychology of it. And uh, Hitchcock was interested in all these things. A lot of this stuff was in the book as well. So I don't think it was a complete accident. I don't think it was lost on them. I don't yeah. think it's one of those situations where it's people coming to the movie and layering in a lot of post-movie rationalization to things that they're seeing. Uh, I think a lot of that was fundamentally baked into the movie. Um, it's not just, it's not an accident. No, I agree. Okay, look, let's wrap this up. Let's plan for next week. Yes. I suppose it's my choice for next next. Have you made your next choice? Week, next month. For next month? Well, we made an egregious mistake in the last podcast. Oh, God. And I was, on reflection, horrified. Tell me. Well, we said that no one died in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, you've already told me this. Yeah, because I texted you. Yes, I know. Okay, the well, morning. there we go. You don't need to say any more. That's it. We're doing Honey, I Shrunk the Kids next week. Look, we, we've gone, we've gone month, big with Psycho. Which is next week for us, by the way. Just so you know. That's why we're saying it. <laughs> Don't spoil the illusion. Sorry. Um, yes. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. There is a death. It's awful. It will wrench your soul from you. It is, in many ways, on par with Psycho. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> and it also has Rick Moranis in, who I love. He's he's always, he was great. And, you know, he's not been back for a long time. So it's it's going to be nice to go back. And I loved that film as a kid. So that is a good choice, Tom. Let's do this. All right, let's have fun next time. So until that beautiful time when we get together as two sweaty boys in sweaty hot rooms. Sweaty boys talking in feeling quite about film. Feeling quite tired. Um, I'll leave you... That note. Thank you, and uh, Tom, be careful when you're taking showers, okay? Always bathe with a handgun. Good boy. Uh, goodbye. Adios.